Yes. So hear the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and he went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and he fell down at his feet and worshipped them. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I, too, am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and he found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person 
common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, at about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth, and he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even, even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing him speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And if you are able, would you please stand as we continue the reading in chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying it. In a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. 
And I heard a voice say to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in uh, which we were and sent to me from uh, Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved and you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads unto life. May God add his blessing to his word. You may take your seats. Well, Dr. Luke was directed by the Holy Spirit not only to tell these stories, but to tell them in such a way as to emphasize their importance. The repetition of the narrative of these events is first told in chapter 10 uh, by Luke, and then Peter repeats the story. Now, probably you find it a bit tedious, but it is actually uh, how it is being communicated that this is an um, exceedingly important story. You can see this in a number of ways. One of them is, is the number of times the visions are recounted. Cornelius' vision is recounted four uh, times. Uh, first by the narrator, then Cornelius' servants, then by Cornelius when Peter arrives, and then Peter relates it to the church in chapter 11. But last of all, these stories introduce us to what comes next, the church of Antioch. It is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And it is from this city that the church will send forth Paul and Barnabas and begin global missions. Now, I want to invite you to listen to the story. It's just so much to take in. It's hard to get your hearts and minds around. And I want to help you uh, see a little bit more. So listen to the story. Here's the background. A prominent Roman army officer named Cornelius is living in Caesarea. Now, it's a city that was designed and built by Herod the Great to be the administrative capital for Rome, uh, for what we think of as Palestine. It was named for and dedicated to Caesar Augustus. It would be colloquially called Caesar Town. 
And Cornelius, because he's a centurion, we know he served for at least 12 years, that he was highly decorated, that he had done exceptional service in the military. So he's a chest full of medals. And most importantly, he's a Gentile. Now, for you boys and girls, when the Bible speaks of a person being a Gentile, it's using a word that in Greek means ethnic. And the Jews thought of themselves as the important chosen people, and they thought of the rest of the world as, well, others, the Gentiles or the nations. Jesus and Paul both use this of those who don't follow uh, Jesus uh, Christ in a few places. And so it's most important to appreciate that Cornelius is a Gentile living in a significant Gentile city, and he is a prominent and privileged member of Roman society. But he's also attracted to Judaism. He hasn't fully converted. Many, many people who were attracted to Judaism viewed circumcision as a mutilation of the body and knew uh, that it would bring public ridicule if that was known. And so he wasn't circumcised. He didn't take on the full yoke of the law. He was respected by the Jewish community, but he didn't keep kosher. He was unclean. He receives a vision from God to summon Peter, who, by the way, is in Joppa. And for those of you who have been studying the book of Jonah, that's where another servant of God goes to run away from God's call to minister uh, to one of the nations outside of Israel. Peter is staying in Joppa, and Cornelius sends two of his servants and a devout soldier with him to report his vision. It's a two-day walk. As the men get close to Joppa, it's lunchtime, and Peter is uh, praying. He's uh, up on a roof waiting while the meal is prepared, and he too receives a vision from God. The heavens open up, it's not the sky opens up. He's in a trance. He is uh, viewing another dimension, a spiritual dimension. And in it, a tarp is lowered uh, down. It's full of animals, clean and unclean, kosher and non-kosher, uh, permitted and forbidden for a Jew. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And it's God speaking. And Peter objects, I've always kept kosher. But the voice from heaven says, what God has made clean, don't call common. This happens three times, and Peter is puzzled. He doesn't know what to make of this vision. Now, the vision is suggestive. God's giving a hint uh, to Peter, and one of the more obvious hints was that the tarp is being let down by the four corners, which suggests the four corners of the earth. But the Spirit says to Peter, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter meets them. Peter invites them in uh, to Simon's home to be a guest. And then the next day he goes with these men off to Caesar town. Now I want you to take this in. Peter's trip to Cornelius in Caesarea is like a Palestinian Muslim from the Gaza Strip going to visit an Israeli army captain in Tel Aviv. 
Caesar's town is no place for a kosher Jew. Peter is out of his comfort zone. And he's candid about that uh, as he discovers a very large gathering in Cornelius' house. He, He says this in verse 28 and 29. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask you then why you've called for me. See, Peter's doing what would have been inconceivable. It would be like attending a pig roast. A kosher Jew would rather die than eat pig. Why am I been summoned? Well, Cornelius recounts uh, his vision, and Peter begins to realize what had been a hint and then a shove, you got to go, now starts to become something clear in his mind. That God wanted Peter to proclaim the gospel, and so he does. And he announces the gospel in these terms. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit rudely interrupts. It is Pentecost all over again. The Holy Spirit falls. It's a strong uh, word. And the Gentiles are speaking in tongues and extolling God just as the 120 disciples did on the feast day, as is recorded in Acts 2. God has embraced not just the Jews, but the nations, the Gentiles. And uh, Peter, uh, in retrospect, really comes to understand what this vision is saying. He, he understands it even as he's standing there in Cornelius' house. He says, I've been treating food and people the same way. To be unclean, you see, for Jews, not just a label, like you might find on a box in the grocery store. No, it's also a reality. The law labels pigs and shrimp unclean, and to touch them made a Jew ceremonially unclean which means that they couldn't participate in worship without undergoing a ritual of being purified. The sheet with the animals comes down from heaven and it goes back from heaven, which is saying to Peter, and he gets this, heaven doesn't distinguish and differentiate the same way as humans. And the story shouts this that God is the one who has acted to include the Gentiles into his church. The church is a big tent. It was his idea all along. The visions and the falling of the Spirit and the repetition of Pentecost uh, tell us that God initiates the mission to the Gentiles. This is in keeping with his plan. It was always plan A for God, all the way back uh, to Abraham when he was told that you will be a blessing uh, to the nations. That the whole world, we know, is blessed through Abraham's greater son. And the summons of Peter and Peter's being told by God uh, to go are given in divine visions and voice. In other words, God's fingerprints all over this. And Luke could have summarized this whole thing in far fewer words. But he intentionally slows down story time, including all these details. He's writing in all caps. It's large font. It's 
bold. It's like, well, it's like a sign on the highway. God is including the Gentiles. He's reaching the nations. And it wasn't just a challenge for the the early church at its beginning. It's still a challenge in every generation. Now, the account in chapter 10 ends with uh, Peter and the men who are with them staying uh, some time in Cornelius' house. Of course, word travels fast. Something like this wasn't something that kept quiet. It got to Jerusalem before uh, Peter and his companions did. And when he arrives, he is immediately greeted with criticism. And you need a little more background to fully understand why. When Peter invites uh, Cornelius' servants and soldier into Simon's home, this isn't a violation of purity laws. Uh, But it was a different matter for a Jew to receive hospitality from a Gentile. You can see it in the story of Jesus' trial in John 18. When Jesus is in Pilate's headquarters, the priests will not go in. And John tells us it's because they do not want uh, to be uh, made unclean and not be able to eat the Passover. Well, what Peter's doing here is he's reluctantly crossing a boundary. Or to use the image from last week's sermon, he was sitting on the wall and now he jumps across to the other Uh, side. That wall that divides Jew and Gentile that Paul describes as the wall of hostility. He's entered into full communal life with the Gentiles. They would bump elbows at the table as they ate and drank uh, together. These are people who don't keep kosher, to say nothing of what might have been on the menu. And this could only be possible because Jesus is Lord. That's what Peter gets. Jesus is Lord and Lord of all. And God's reason for kosher food, in spite of what you may have heard, is not food safety or physical hygiene. It has nothing uh, to do with that. That just shows you how 21st century uh, is trying to be read into the Bible. No, God explains it in Leviticus 11. He says this, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defy, defile yourselves with swarming things that crawl on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy as I am holy. So keeping kosher was a visible sign of Israel's holiness and separation to God as his people. Now God commanded Israel when it came to the promised land not to intermarry with the inhabitants because it would lead to their downfall. They would spiritually adopt the gods of the people whose land they lived in. And this was a constant temptation, and a lot of them, a lot of their history, they fell into this. And over uh, time, because of the relations between Jews and Gentiles, the Jews, partly because they were God's called people, and partly because they lived under the oppression of other nations, became very, very hostile to those who weren't Jewish, in spite of the fact that they had been told that God's plan was always to include them. They just forgot that. And Jonah's just, you know, exhibit A of a Jew who hates uh, the people in the nations around him. 
But Peter's finally grasping what he heard Jesus say. In Mark 7, Jesus says, Don't you see that whatever goes into a person uh, from outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You see, being spiritually unclean is not a matter of what you eat or touch, It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what's on the inside. And all of us are spiritually unclean. Only Jesus can cleanse the human heart. And he does that by shedding his blood on the cross. Only he can cleanse our hearts of the wicked thoughts and desires that we have and the actions that flow out of them. Now the point's this. God is pleased to welcome those who are excluded. And God acts through a reluctant church only after Peter gives an account of all uh, that happened, the visions and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And verse 18 in chapter 11 tells us the critics fall silent. After all, what can they say? You know, it's not just Peter. They don't have to take Peter's word for it. There's six other men Uh, who testified that these things happened. And so they accepted what happened. But the implications of God's actions would create a sharp conflict in the church. There were many priests in Jerusalem who had come to embrace Jesus Christ, and they were uh, very keen about keeping uh, kosher. Now please note what's going on here. God is the one who took this initiative, and he's challenging the status quo in the church. He moved not just Peter, but the church in Jerusalem out of their ruts, out of what was familiar, out of their prejudices, out of their comfortable patterns, patterns that they had had for centuries, which they saw uh, as rooted in Scripture. Admittedly, it was a one-sided reading of Scripture, But they saw these things as rooted in Scripture. And this, though, was the missionary activity Jesus told them before he ascended to heaven they would be involved in. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But you see, it doesn't look like what they expected. It's not what they imagined. It's not what they planned. Any more than when Jesus came, the Christ was what they were anticipating. God planned it. God initiated it. God's the one who sets up the chessboard to bring this about in such a way that the church is uh, confronted with the reality of God's actions. But as subsequent, uh, subsequent events will show that uh, many conservative Orthodox Jews, who in the Old Testament are called Pharisees, well, they wouldn't be as accepting as God. Now, how do we live this out? How do we live out this story? Well, one of the clues is in what Peter says, 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Or as the NIV puts, uh, uh, now I realize. Peter's beginning to work out the implications of what God has revealed. Uh, For Peter, the light goes on, but he won't be consistent. As we saw when we were studying Galatians, he retreats uh, from this understanding under social pressure. He acts as if he's keeping kosher uh, again. And social pressure, we're all subject uh, to it. Uh, That's why you didn't come in your pajamas this morning, in case you didn't think that through. Um, And see, the question is, do we realize the implications of what God has done? Do we need to catch up with what God is doing? So here's a diagnostic question you can ask yourself. Do you share God's passion to see the gospel reach people? To extend the kingdom to the people you live and work and play with? To go to people who are different than you? Or do you show partiality in who you're willing to associate with? Who you'd share the gospel with? God knocked down this wall. It's our responsibility to crawl over the rubble to the other side to those people who have yet to hear the gospel. It's not for those who haven't responded to the gospel to crawl over the rubble to us. Now I want to tell you a little bit about my own personal journey with this. God has been working in me to see uh, how it, it is that he wants me to be involved in what he's doing. Now, I've mentioned before, I came to Christ as a young adult. It was a radical uh, change in my uh, life, and I was astounded at what had happened uh, to me. I had hurt a whole bunch of people, and I needed to go back and ask their forgiveness. And I also was just excited to be able to tell them about the change that happened to me as I ask uh, for them to forgive me. And um, I was like that for a long time. But as the years went on in college, I began to want to find a wife, to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and I became increasingly absorbed in my studies. And eventually I ended up going to seminary, for four years, and I had very little contact with anybody who wasn't at the seminary because I was, well, I was putting in 12 or more hours every day uh, studying, more like 16 most days. And um, uh, then uh, when I graduated, I was involved intensely with the development of my career. And so I had a period of about 10 years when I really had very little contact with anybody outside of the church. And I was very, very excited about what I was learning about God and scripture and and so on. And it really wasn't until God moved me uh, and Nancy to rural South Carolina that God showed me what was going on in my heart and began to work on me. You see, um, we moved to uh, a mill town, a place where cotton was milled into fabric in South Carolina. And um, it was the rural South. And we lived in a small town. That's a lot different than the suburbs of Richmond or Baltimore where I grew up. And I was an outsider. And people were not too subtle 
about it. I was a Yankee. Actually, I was a blank Yankee. Uh, my speech, my clothes, the way I thought, and, uh, and my values all revealed that. And people let me know that they would just as soon I move back to where I came from. And, um, but I was a pastor, and uh, I, as I studied the Bible, I became uh, deeply moved by Paul's instructions to Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And I began to wonder, how was I going to do that? The church I was serving was in a rural village that covered about 25 square miles of land that mostly wasn't being farmed. And, and eventually, with some advice, I, I, I prayed, and then I started going door to door. And I would introduce myself as the pastor of such and such church, because pastors sometimes still had some respect in, in, in that community. And I would ask, was there anything I could pray for, anybody who was sick? Is there anything we could do for them as a church? And sometimes, if it seemed appropriate, I would leave them uh, something about the gospel, or if they seemed a little bit more open, I might ask if they'd be interested in, in perhaps doing a Bible study uh, together. And uh, I knocked on, well, probably 30, 50 doors over the course of a year or so. Tried to get my church to do that with me, but really nobody was interested. And I remember really distinctly that I went to the home of a very poor uh, black family. Uh, probably this house had been constructed by the company that owned that town uh, some time before. And the hole in the wall that led to the outside was as big as a window in my house. It was cold. And the woman opened the door, and I could see on her face that she did not trust me. We talked for a few minutes. Of those, whatever number it was, homes that opened the door, there were two people that invited me in. One of them I did a Bible study with, and one, that one came ultimately to church. Was it just duty? Was I being motivated by guilt? Well, let me tell you, I knew that I should do this, but even though there were very little fruit from doing it, at least that I could see, my heart grew in passion for people who hadn't heard the gospel. You see, my passion diminished, didn't diminish, excuse me, it grew as I uh, did what was uncomfortable. And if you're obedient to the life that Christ gives you, you will experience the same thing. Your heart and life will become more like his. Now, God, here, this is how we live this story. God acts to overcome the, the inertia of the entire Jewish church. You have to remember that basically at this point in the story of the book of Acts, the church is just Jewish. It's all Jewish. Um, and you shouldn't expect, we shouldn't expect that God's going to repeat this. This is a unique unrepeatable event in the history and story of God's work in the world. But churches have inertia. It's the natural tendency of a church to become 
focused inwardly and to lose its outward mission focus. It's sometimes called mission drift. If you're familiar with Harvard University, it was founded to train pastors and missionaries. But it drifted far from its biblical uh, moorings and its mission uh, to do that, and churches do too. And you can tell when a church has. All you have to do is examine the budget, look at the calendar and how members use their time, what ministry priorities and planning takes place, and what the membership is zealous for, excited about. And it's a bit like if a farmer never plants a seed, there is, as a natural consequence, there's no harvest. And so a church that's lost its uh, mission, it's drifted from its mission, lacks conversions. There is an absence of the profound joy that Jesus describes in the parable of the prodigal son. The joy of the angels of heaven. And when things go on long enough like this, over time, the church experiences numerical decline. It grays. And usually the church doesn't recognize its lack of joy unless someone happens to tell maybe their story of how God reached into their lives. Or perhaps somehow someone who is new to Christ stumbles into their midst and you hear their story. Just how does a church overcome its inertia? Well, it's just like Apollo 13 recognizes it as a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And perhaps the core problem is this, that we lose sight of this because, well, we like our kind of people. We strongly prefer our kind of people. Dennis Johnson uh, is a New Testament professor and academic dean at Westminster Seminary uh, on the West Coast. He's written a commentary on the message of the book of Acts and reflecting on this theme in the book of Acts. He says, you know, we sing red, brown, yellow, black, and white. Uh, They are all precious in the sight. The children sing that in Sunday school, or at least they used to. And uh, we know it's true, but it doesn't make it easy for people of different ethnicities or cultures to live together in the church. In Los Angeles, which isn't that far from the seminary he served in, it's common. In fact, most churches have signs that announce multiple language services are held there. Sometimes it's two churches that speak different languages, English and Korean, English and Chinese, English and Spanish, you name it, English and Mandarin, whatever, you know, all sorts of things. And you see, this is so appropriate. This is sort of a picture of the church, that the church is a big tent gathering all uh, the nations. But it's not easy to do that. You know, when people who are your kind of people and you are together and you're trying to do something, well, it's natural for misunderstandings uh, to develop, for friction to take place. Uh, And There's nothing automatic about expressing Christ's love in a multicultural or multiracial situation. But the Spirit of God 
fashioned unity in the body of Christ, and we have to work at it. Nothing but the oil of the Spirit would ever make that possible. Now, when a congregation begins to reach out and draw on people from a different culture or social group, comfortable routines and long-held assumptions will be disturbed. John says it's not might be disturbed. No, they will be disturbed. Because people who are not our people, your people, are going to have different needs. And some of the things that you always did a certain way as a church might need to be revisited. Maybe you always thought that everybody's children should do what your children did in church. But maybe for the single mom who didn't grow up in church, expecting that might be a lot to ask. And maybe, well, you need to rethink what you do on Sunday morning, what's appropriate uh, for those children and that family. It takes great, great wisdom to navigate these issues. But here you and I find ourselves. We are in a cosmopolitan city. This is one of the world's great cities. And the nations have come here. And God is doing something among the nations here. And really the the question for us is, you know, can we embrace what God's doing? Will we be open? Will we be willing? Uh, Will the leaders demonstrate the kind of wisdom and love that only the Spirit can give a church to be the kind of church that Christ wants? I don't know what it'll look like that really, really welcomes people of other ethnicities, embraces them in a way that they know that they're no longer outsiders. You know, the author of Hebrews says this. He says... We have an altar from which those who serve in the tabernacle or the temple have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin were burned outside the camp. And so Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his blood. You see, Jesus who was an insider, how could you be more an insider than to be the Jewish Messiah? But he became an outsider so that we who are outsiders could become insiders. If you're here today and you're our guest, you honor us. And if you feel like an outsider, we want you to know Jesus regards you as an insider. And we want to welcome you this morning. If you're here and you're an outsider to Christianity, you honor us by being here. We're glad for you to be here. We hope you'll join us at a meal in just a few minutes. But we want you to know Jesus died so that outsiders could be insiders. In fact, all of you were once outsiders too. Once you had no hope and knew no God, and you've been included because of what Jesus did. And this is Jesus leading his church in the book of Acts. And he's still leading his church all around the globe because the globe, well, the globe today is just, it's a milkshake. It's a smoothie. It's just totally mixed together. There's probably almost no place in the world 
were people from different nations and cultures and ethnicities don't live near each other. Probably most of you who work, work with people who really aren't your kind of people. And Jesus invites us to follow him in welcoming them. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Lord, we do uh, thank you for your welcoming us. And we thank you for this table this morning that shows us at what cost we were welcomed and all that you did to make that possible. And so as we draw near to this table, to your table, Lord Jesus, the table which you set not just for us, but for the nations. We pray, Father, that through the grace of the gospel, through the promises of it, that we might come and eat and drink uh, with gladness of heart, that we might be changed just a bit more to be like Christ, that we might more and more share your passion for those who are outsiders. Lord, uh, be pleased to grant that this table would be sweet. For one day we will sit at this table where all the nations will be gathered and you will serve us at that marriage supper which you have set as the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're our guest, let me just tell you a little bit about how we do this. Uh, we, we 